we continue to worship Jesus this morning, we are beginning today a series that we do each year in the Crossing Church on the mission and vision of who we are as a local church. Uh, We set aside so many weeks every September to do this as a yearly reminder of what God's called us to do. And part of what we're doing this year is we're going to take five minutes every Sunday and take one aspect of who we are and what we're doing and spend time explaining it, um, giving some more information, details. uh, That way uh, you understand or have a better grasp of the specifics of the Crossing Church. We may uh, drop something like this into our worship gatherings on a more regular basis. Uh, And today we're looking at what we provide for kids during our Sunday morning worship gathering and why. So this is not the part of the sermon. So this is a five-minute explanation of what we provide for kids and why. So you can stop your, start your watch now, and after five minutes, stop it, reset it, and start again. But it's our conviction that parents are the primary disciple-makers of their kids. The church exists to help parents and equip parents to do that well. Now, obviously, if we have kids who are part of the crossing or students whose parents are not discipling them because of various reasons why their parents can't or won't, And we're going to invite those kids and students into the lives of other families so that other parents can disciple them and shepherd them and teach them about Jesus while we're trying to reach their parents. But with that conviction in mind, even though we believe that's the parents' responsibility, that doesn't mean we don't want to do anything on Sunday mornings. It doesn't mean we just do nothing for our children who show up here. And so we create an environment. We recognize the importance of kids learning about Jesus on their cognitive level, and not all sermons do a great job of contextualizing the six-year-olds, even if they are listening and and are paying attention. Uh, So we create an environment where they can learn on their level. We also recognize there is a cultural expectation in our city, in our region, that churches will do something for kids on Sunday morning. And so we want to be hospitable and loving to people and families who may show up here, whether they be uh, uh, churched or unchurched, hopefully unchurched. And even unchurched people have a concept of what churches do. And on Sunday morning, you do something for my kids, right? Yes, we do. Let, let me tell you what we do for you. The kids will uh, be in a, an environment right now. They're upstairs and downstairs where they're learning about truths of Jesus and his gospel, where they're being loved, protected, and nurtured. And we even hope that some of the things that they learn will spur on conversations at home with siblings and parents. Now, we also know there's some families who are really passionate about their kids staying with them during this time, the song time and the sermon time. And we say, parents, you are the primary disciple maker of your kids. If that's what's best for you and your kids, then please feel the freedom to do that. And if you want to help, like, yeah, I wish I had something to give them to help them pay attention. Like, we've done that before. We've printed up little worship guides for kids to have activities and to, you know, take notes and do different things to keep them focused. We can do that again. Just let us know. And if you want to do that, we can certainly help you do that. But during the sermon time, we do provide a class for your kids according to those ages on the screen. And we're teaching them right now, loving them right now with the gospel of Jesus Christ. Now, you may say, well, why not the entire worship gathering? You know, uh, why don't you just we drop our kids off when we show up and we can pick them up three hours later when we're done? Just kidding. Hour and a half. Um, that'd be really nice. Well, we feel like it's important for the children of our families to see us worshiping Jesus, to see us singing songs to Jesus, to see us praying together and taking communion together and giving together and 
uh, having Scripture read over us together. And so we feel like this time is really good uh, for them to, to watch and learn and participate as they are age appropriate. You may say, but my kids are so active. It's hard for them to sit still. It's hard for them to be quiet or behave and not be disruptive. It's hard for me to focus because I'm dealing with them. And I would say, let's talk about that. We're family. So if you would be humble enough to say, I need help, and if you would be humble enough to receive that help, then we'd love to, to, to help you figure that out. Maybe for some, some of our veteran parents, parents they may have uh, snacks or duct tape that can help you out. Uh, you can go in the back of the room if you feel like it's distracting to other people. There's sofas back there. We can do other things back there to help you out. But let's just have that conversation because that's what families do. They talk about things together. And they're open and honest and transparent. At least that's what the gospel creates the family to do. Also, uh, understand that because this is family, there's no expectation for your kids to be perfect. To not make any noises. To not move or distract anybody. Half the time kids are distracting us because we're making faces at them. Right? That's one of the fun things about sitting behind kids. Um, if you have young kids at home, you know how to focus in the, in the middle of the chaos. And so if we can focus in the midst of the chaos, I think the Spirit of God can handle this group and whatever distractions kids may cause and accomplish His work, not because everything is perfect, but because He is the Spirit of God and He does whatever He chooses. More information can be shared about what kids look like in the life of the mission community. We'll save that for mission community uh, discussions. But most of all, we love your kids. We love our kids. Our great desire is for them to know and love God, and to enjoy Him, to experience the, the best that He has from now and forever. Not to simply cater to them or you know, seek to do everything possible to make every family happy because every family's wish list is checked off. That's not possible but to love them in a way that, and protect them and nurture them in a way that challenges them and teaches them to know and follow Jesus. And, as, and, and then as we do that, we want to equip you as parents to do that well. So that's what we do with kids for those who want to know what we do with kids on Sunday. So digest that, ask questions, speak into that, and share that with other people, people that you invite, people who show up on Sunday mornings and, and they're new and they're kind of looking around, what do I do with these little things? I've got to get rid of them for a little while. Talk to them about how much we love and value kids and what we do to, to love and value kids. Father, we are so thankful for children, the gift, the blessing that they are. We thank you for how you have overwhelmingly blessed the Crossing Church with so many children. Thank you for the fruitfulness that you have given us in that area of life. And we want to disciple our kids well. We want to teach them about Jesus well. We want them to grow up and love Jesus and serve Jesus even more passionately and consistently and fervently with more sacrifice than, than we do. We want them to go above and beyond of, than what we're doing. And so help us to do our part. Help us to love families well, in our, not just those who show up on Sundays, but in our city as well. Speak to us now through this time. Teach us through your word. May Christ be glorified by what you accomplish, by what you accomplish in us. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. As you turn to Acts chapter 1, Acts chapter 1, we love origin stories. Spider-Man, Superman, Black Panther, Captain America, Iron Man, name the superhero. We love to know how they became who they were and how they learned to live with the powers that they acquired. How they, they learned that with uh, great power comes great responsibility. That's right. 
something we all have to learn, right? We like origin stories of couples, Jim and Pam, Ben and Leslie, April and Andy, Rachel and Ross, uh, uh, Sam and Diane for my generation. We love these stories of how it all began. How do they meet and how do they fall in love? We love the stories of families, uh, like when we meet somebody new and we want to know their origin story. So we start asking origin story questions like, who are you and where are you from and where did you grow up and what was it like and when did you grow up and how did you get from where you were to where you are today? We love to hear about how married couples met and fell in love and became a family. It's all fascinating information. As we begin our vision series this morning, we're going to take some time today examining the origin story of the church, not the crossing specifically, although we love to tell that story as well, but the church in general. Where and how the church began has a lot to do with what makes the church distinct then and even today. Now, this vision series over the next five weeks is going to spend time mostly in the book of Acts. We're going to examine the qualities about the church that make it distinct from any other group or organization in our culture and look at this idea of what makes the church the church. More specifically, what does that look like as the crossing church? One of the dangers of the church is that we who are in the church kind of fall, um, not intentionally, into these ruts where we can easily begin to assume the things that make us distinct. We can begin to assume important convictions and think that we're carrying them out. Eventually, this can lead to us forgetting that those were our convictions, and all of a sudden now we're tolerating mentalities, methodologies, and maybe even eventually theologies that are completely out of line with who the church is and what the church is called to be. And when that happens, that digression, the church loses its distinctiveness, and it becomes just another group organization in our city. And we begin to treat the church or place expectations on the church that we would place on any other organization or group. The church should do this. The church should be this. The church should treat me like this. The church should make me feel like this. My experience with the church should be this. I'm not getting it. So something is wrong with the church. And after a while, you just kind of stop and say, wait, wait a second. Are we talking about the church anymore? I guess you could boil it down to the consumerist mentality that drives so much of our culture. It's easily brought into the church environment. And we very slowly and subtly enslave a church and its leaders. And the church begins to simply cave to the consumeristic culture. And leaders quit leading the church to be what the scriptures tell us the church is. In America, the consumer is king. And the marketplace exists to cater to the king and give the king what he wants. And even, even if you say, yeah, but the market also exists to make you want what you didn't know you wanted. I mean, a month ago, who wanted to eat a Popeye's fried chicken sandwich? Who even knew that they had one? So that's like the church, right? People don't know they want Jesus. And so if we present it the right way, then they'll want it. But that mentality is still more about selling a product than proclaiming a salvation. And what invariably happens is we get caught more into the packaging and marketing to make Jesus more appealing than simply proclaiming Jesus. And living out the reality of who Jesus is in our life. It's more about trusting in the schemes of man to make spiritual life happen than trusting in the Spirit of God to do what the Spirit of God has been doing for thousands of years, make people alive in Christ. It doesn't mean we don't contextualize the gospel to the people we're trying to reach. Yes, we do that. 
But contextualization is not about making the gospel more appealing, but about making it more understandable. The same message of Jesus Christ and him crucified, risen from the dead. Let me get it to you in a language, in a way that is relevant to to who you are so you can understand it, not to make it easier to eat. It's only digestible and, and embraceable because the Spirit of God has done that work in us. And we all of a sudden, we love what we didn't love before. We serve who we didn't want to serve before. And we worship who we were rebelling against. That doesn't happen because it's sold to us the right way. It happens because the Spirit of God has done it. And we're faithful to proclaim it. Brett McCracken in his book, Uncomfortable, the Awkward and Essential Challenge of Christian Community, he says this, For too long, the consumer logic of Christian culture has been... Find a church that meets your needs. Find a church where the worship music moves you, the preacher's preaching compels you, and the homogenous community welcomes you. You, you, you. But this model doesn't work. Not only is it coldly transactional, what have you done for me lately, and devoid of covenantal commitment, consumeristic church attendance is basically a celebrity marriage without a prenup. It's also anti-gospel. A true gospel community is not about convenience and comfort and chai lattes in the vestibule. It's about pushing each other forward in holiness, striving together for the kingdom, joining along in the ongoing work of the Spirit in this world. Those interested only in their comfort and happiness need not apply. Being in the church is difficult. So what we hope and pray you will see today and over the next five weeks is the church is unlike anything that has ever existed and exists on the face of the earth today. It's like a family, but it's actually more than just a biological family because it transcends ethnic and genetic and biological lines. It's like a business in some ways, but it's more than a business because we're not operating to to get as much money as, as we possibly can or hoard money or use money to have power and influence, but it's to see money as a tool to lay up heavenly reward. It's like a social action group, but it's more than just giving food or clothing or education or healthcare equality because we know what's ultimately broken in us can't only be fixed by the temporal and the physical. Those are important and necessary, and as you'll see in Acts 1 and 2, reveal God's love for humanity and should exist among God's people, but spiritual and eternal solutions are essential for what's really broken in us, and the gospel is the remedy. It's like a school in that we emphasize instruction and teaching, but more than a school because our goal isn't at a decree and a finish line where I've arrived, I'm done with school. Our goal is to know and obey the teachings of King Jesus, which doesn't end until you're dead. It's like a movie or sporting event in that when we gather together on a Sunday like this, it's a somewhat unpredictable experience. Like we don't really know how God's spirit is going to show up, how God's presence is going to show up. You didn't come this morning knowing for sure how God was going to speak to you. There's this unpredictability about it that that makes it kind of exciting. You come with this expectation. How will God's presence show up today? How will God speak today? But it's more than an entertainment event because we're not here to evaluate the talent or simply have a feel-good experience that we can talk about later on social media. We're here to encounter God and be encountered by Him. The church is distinct from anything else because of who and what we're devoted to. The church is distinct because of whose we are. The church is distinct because we belong to God and we are His people. So let's walk through the book of Acts, primarily chapters 1 and 2, and examine the origin story of the church and hopefully draw from that helpful encouragements for us. And I want to set up the book of Acts. So eventually we're going to get to Acts. You're probably thinking we're never going to get to Acts. We will. 
But I want to set it up because the book of Acts records an extremely significant time period in the story of God's redemption of sinful humanity. But you have to see it in light of all of Scripture. So if you go back to the beginning, taking a 30,000 view of Scripture, God created all things good, Genesis 1, Genesis 2, mankind rebelled, Genesis 3, and God set into motion a plan he had before the foundation of the world to send his son to be the savior of the world. First promise in Genesis 3.15, in the midst of the sinful rebellion of our parents in the garden, God is cursing the serpent who tempted Eve to sin and rebel, and in the midst of the curse of the serpent is a promise for humanity. I will put enmity between you, serpent, and the woman, and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. They would come one the seed of the woman, hinting at the virgin birth, who would suffer himself, his heel would be bruised, but he would deliver a fatal blow to the serpent by crushing his head. And the rest of the Bible is this promise unfolding. We find out as the story progresses from the specific line of people that this promised son would come from would be from the family of this man named Abram. God shows up, reveals himself to Abram and says in Genesis 12, 1 through 3, go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land I will show you. And I will make you a great nation. I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you. And him who dishonors you, I will curse. And in you, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. So this son would come from Abram, later Abraham. More specifically, his son Isaac and Isaac's son Jacob and Jacob's son Judah. And on and on we could go for a long time through the Old Testament, recording generation after generation of people being born and dying and waiting for his son to come, who would eventually be a blessing to all the families of the earth. Now, God loved his people and he engaged in relationship with them. He didn't wait until the one came, the son came. He engaged in relationship with them throughout He made a way for them to be in a covenantal relationship with him while they waited. He appeared and revealed himself to men over many years, off and on. He he saved and protected them and blessed them as he promised that he would to Abram in Genesis 12. For instance, there was a great famine at the end of Genesis. And the Lord made a way for them to go to Egypt, where God had already put a plan in place through Joseph to have food stored up to feed God's people as well as others and to protect them from the famine. Then when they stayed so long in Egypt in Exodus chapter 1, they became slaves to the Egyptians. They cried out for deliverance, and God had a plan in place to send Moses and Aaron to bring them out of Egypt into the promised land and and there take them to Mount Sinai, where at Mount Sinai they would enter into this covenantal relationship with God. And then God would give them a land he had promised in Genesis 12. He would show them how to live as his people, and he would make a way for their sins to be atoned for through temple worship and sacrificial, sacrificial system, their sins to be covered. So the barrier of sin that had been dividing them from God since Genesis 3 could be taken care of so they could know God. They could be his people. And it happened through these ongoing, continual sacrifices. God was making a way for them to know him and to be his people. And the rest of the Old Testament is God's people obeying God, being blessed, taking God for granted, rebelling, falling into disobedience and idolatry. God never wiping them out, saying, let's start over with somebody else, but sending over and over again a deliverer, a king, a prophet, someone who would bring the hearts of the people back to him. And these cycles of this relationship continue for hundreds of years, all waiting for the son of the woman to come who would crush the head of the serpent. And then one day, an angel appeared to a young lady named Mary. Said, you're going to be with a child. Even though you're not married, and you've never been with a man, 
And one day an angel appeared to her fiancé, Joseph. Don't go crazy, Joseph. Mary's about to be pregnant. It's okay. This is a work of God. So take her as your wife. And Mary and Joseph, you're going to name this son Jesus. Because he's going to save people from their sins. And this baby would grow up and become a man. And one day he would show up at the Jordan River. And his cousin, John the Baptist, would look at him and say, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. The final sacrifice is here. No longer would sins be simply covered up. Now they would be taken away. And as Jesus was baptized, the Holy Spirit descended on him like a dove, and a voice from heaven called out and said, Behold, my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. And the incarnate ministry of Jesus began, teaching with authority that can only come from God, performing miracles and signs and wonders that gave testimony to the power of God in him, doing things only God can do, like forgiving sin, knowing the hearts of men, confronting religious hypocrites, loving the unlovables, calling the unexpected, uneducated men and women to follow him, not the cream of the crop that society adored, but the unexpected and the unknown. And for three years, Jesus traveled and taught and lived a perfect, sinless life, healing who knows how many people, showing the world what the kingdom of God is like, showing the world that even death could be reversed with this man and his power. Widow of Nain, let your son rise. Lazarus, rise. Jairus, your daughter, let her rise. Death is not the end. Showing that sin no longer had power of humanity because sin's could be forgiven and not eaten Satan himself could make Jesus sin and so the temptation our parents faced in the garden was no longer the inevitable destiny of God's people and people who follow this man Jesus that we could be tempted by Satan himself and because we have the power of Jesus in us we can say no he has no authority over us we are not just slaves to sin any longer and at the end of his life Jesus was not given a throne on earth and a coronation party with all of humanity ready to worship and serve the king of the universe like we sang about at the beginning. He was given a cross. The worst and most painful way to die ever invented by sinful humanity. An instrument of death so bad that Rome, not known for their mercy, wouldn't even make their own citizens die on. The instrument of death for the despised, the shamed, the rejected, and the rebellious. For the common criminal to hang naked, exposed to the elements, slowly suffocating over days while birds and other animals pick at your flesh, while people walk by and mock you and dismiss you as just another bad person getting what they deserve. And there the king of the universe hung. Dying within hours, showing that he's sovereign over death. After being nailed to the cross, taken down, lovingly wrapped and placed in the tomb by his followers. And it seemed as though if you were in their shoes, the movement had ended. His followers were in hiding, thinking they would be next. His words and demonstrations of power still hanging in the air. How could this have happened? What went wrong? How is this God's plan for God's kingdom? How is this the seed of the woman crushing the head of the serpent? In every way, it seems like all was lost. And was all for nothing. He was our best hope and our chance, and now he's dead. Where is our hope? Like, I know that you know Easter was coming, but never go fat, so fast to Easter that you forget about that silent Saturday when the world was dark and it didn't seem like the sun would ever rise again. 
Remember, no one was standing by the tomb on Sunday morning waiting for it to happen. The women did not go to worship Jesus. They went to embalm his body. On Saturday, there was only silence and despair. But then Sunday came. And the most transformative event since creation itself shook the foundations of the earth. The stone was rolled away and Jesus walked out in victory, proclaiming to the whole universe, my work is complete. I have God's stamp of approval. Everything that I've come to do is undone, is done. Death is now dead. Sin is now broken forever. It was finished on the cross when Jesus said it is finished, but the the grave walking out of the tomb was God's confirmation that it worked. It's true. It's real. Everything he did and said was true. We can believe him for everything. Not just life eternal, but life here and now. Death was put to death. The promised one had come and won. And for several weeks, this conquering king appeared to his followers and hundreds of people so there would be eyewitness evidence that he was indeed resurrected from the dead. The first person to be resurrected from the dead never to die again. He was the same in some ways, but he was also different. In some ways, the same physical body with scars to prove it, but glorified in new ways, a foretaste of the body that we're going to get one day. And so now what? The seed had come. He had won. Now what? Acts chapter 1, verse 1. In the first book, this is Luke writing this, referring to the gospel of Luke he's already written. In the first book, O Theophilus, I have dealt with all that Jesus began to do and teach until the day when he was taken up after he had given commands to the Holy Spirit to the apostles whom he had chosen. He presented himself alive to them after his suffering by many proofs, appearing to them during 40 days and speaking about the kingdom of God. And while staying with him, them, he ordered them not to depart from Jerusalem, but to wait for the promise of the Father, which he said, you heard from me, for John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. So when they had come together, they asked him, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom of Israel? And he said to them, it is not for you to know times or seasons that the Father has fixed by his own authority, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. And when he had said these things, as they were looking on, he was lifted up, and a cloud took him out of their sight. And while they were gazing into heaven as he went, behold, two men stood by them in white robes and said, Men of Galilee, why do you stand looking into heaven? This Jesus who was taken up from you into heaven will come in the same way as you saw him go into heaven. The resurrected Jesus spent 40 days teaching them about his kingdom. In fact, Luke records in Luke 24, he went back through the Old Testament and showed them all the places that spoke about him. The greatest Bible study that's ever existed because Jesus has taken all the scriptures that existed at that time and saying, that's me, that's me, that's me, that's me. Just fulfilling all Old Testament prophecy. Showing them all the places that the Old Testament pointed to him. That's all the scriptures the church had. So don't dismiss the Old Testament. It was sufficient for the church to proclaim the gospel of Jesus and for the church to be born. Now they were still unsure, and so they asked, okay, is now the time you're going to come and take the throne, establish a rule, and reign forever on earth? And Jesus, again, gracious and patient, as always with his disciples, said, no. It's not for you to know when that time will come. So predictions about the return of Christ are pointless, complete waste of time. So then what are we supposed to do? 
Well, we are to live, as it tells us in verse 8, as his people, as his witnesses, empowered by the Holy Spirit, sent by the Father and the Son to give testimony about Jesus among all peoples and all nations. In fact, the word in the original language in the New Testament translated as witness is the Greek word for martyr. A martyr, someone willing to die for a cause or a person they believe in and to let their death point to this person or this cause. We literally live our lives laying down our lives to let Jesus be known among all peoples that he puts us. That's the church. Jesus ascends, and they do what we all would do, just kind of stand there and watch. Like, okay, what's next? Is he coming back? Angels have to go and tell them, go back and do the thing that he told you to do. Go to Jerusalem and wait. He's coming back. When he comes back, he's not coming back secretly, but he's coming back the same way you saw him leave so that all nations will know that he's the king. But right now, there's only 120 of you so Jesus, uh, and Jesus just told you that you're going to bear witnesses uh, about him to all the corners of the earth. So go back to Jerusalem and wait for the power that you're going to need to make that happen. That's a little overwhelming. 120 people, none of the modern technology that they have today, you've got to reach all the corners of the earth. They would do what I hope we would do, fall on their face in prayer. Say, please, God, help us. And we see that in verse 12. They returned to Jerusalem from the mount called Olivet, which is near Jerusalem, a Sabbath day's journey away. And when they had entered, they went to the upper room where they were staying. Peter and John and James and Andrew, Philip and Thomas, Bartholomew, Matthew, James, the son of Alphaeus, and Simon the Zealot, and Judas, the son of James. All these with one accord were devoting themselves to prayer together with the women and Mary, the mother of Jesus, and his brothers. And the very next verse says there were 120 of them. They had to replace Judas to have 12 disciples that represented the 12 tribes of Israel. And then once they did that, something miraculous happened. Chapter 2. When the day of Pentecost arrived, they were all together in one place. And suddenly there came from heaven a sound like a mighty rushing wind. And it filled the entire house where they were sitting. And divided tongues as a fire appeared to them and rested on each of them. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. Now there were dwelling in Jerusalem Jews, devout men from every nation under heaven. And at this sound, the multitude came together and they were bewildered because each one was hearing them speak in their own language. And they were amazed and astonished, saying, Are not all these who are speaking Galileans? And how is it that we hear each of us in our own native language? Parthians and Medes and Elamites and residents of Mesopotamia and Judea and Cappadocia, Pontus and Asia, Phrygia and Pamphylia, Egypt, and the other parts of Libya belonging to Cyrene and visitors from Rome. Both Jews and proselytes, Cretans and Arabians, we hear them telling in our own tongues the mighty works of God. And all were amazed and perplexed, saying to one another, What does this mean? But others, mocking them, said, They are filled with new wine. God's people, the Holy Spirit, for, for the first time, baptized God's people with fire, and they were immersed in the Spirit, and the Spirit of God came and indwelt inside of them. This is something new. The Holy Spirit, before this time, would come and go. Come on someone, empower them for their season, and then leave. Come on to a place, let its presence dwell richly and accomplish the purposes of God, and then leave. Now, this new thing, the Holy Spirit comes and indwells the people of God never to leave the people of God, to always be inside of them, that we are now the, the, the temple of the Holy Spirit, 1 Corinthians 6. We are now a living temple, Ephesians 3, built on the cornerstone of Christ and the foundation of the apostles. 
This is a new thing, God's Spirit living inside of God's people. God's people noticed immediately not just Jewish, but all ethnicities heard and understood are Jewish people from different ethnicities. And the response of some was to be amazed and filled with awe and want to know more. What does this mean? And some simply mocked them. These guys are drunk. Peter says in verse 14 and 15, we're not drunk. It's only 9 o'clock in the morning. This is not an LSU football game. Come on. And then he preaches this sermon. I'm not going to read the whole thing, but just to give you a few snippets of it. Verse 22. Men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst, as you yourselves know. This Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. You crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. God raised him up and loosing the pains of death because it was not possible for him to be held by it. Peter preaches a sermon filled with Old Testament quotations and examples because it was a scripture that they had, and it was a scripture Jesus had used to teach them about him, and it was a scripture that the Holy Spirit brought to his mind as he preached. These scriptures bear witness to the reality of who Jesus is and what Jesus has come to do. He continues, verse 36. Let all, this is how he concludes it, let all the house of Israel therefore know for certain that God has made both him, him, both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. He is Lord, King, Boss, Ruler of the universe, and he is Christ, Messiah, the anointed one that the entire